Kyle Stein and me, Michael Kimball. Today is a glorious day because we are joined in our various studios by Christopher Shannon and David Smoot. David is, uh, as some of you know, the Yahoo Fantasy League was called last week. And uh, so we declared a winner, David Smook's team, the step back after an absolutely dominating regular season in which he won the league by 17 and a half games over the second place team and beat the last place team by 65 and a half games. David. Can you explain your absolute dominance of scorekeeper? Well, first, I have to say, if um, if we had money riding on this, I'd be really angry if a winner was declared because we all know the playoffs are very different from the regular season. Well, in Yahoo, for whatever it's worth, and all of the money leagues, all of the money went directly back to everybody who played. No fees were taken out. No awards were given um, with the money. This was just the non-moneyed, you, you know, uh, trophies that are worth no exchangeable value unless somebody wants that for some reason on their on their yahoo account so yeah I mean, but you, you know as i mentioned in our message chain though i really do believe that you play every season for all contingencies and you know had the the season ended in early november it would have been absurd to call a winner i mean there just hadn't been enough games played to determine anything it would but have been exactly you, the same yeah when you make it to mid-march <laughs> though and you have a team, especially in this situation, that has shown such dominance. Um, I have, you know, no qualms about uh, awarding you um, fully um, the championship. Is there a belt? I hope there's a belt. <laughs> we could make a belt. <laughs> Are well, we going to mean... make an atrocious trophy for El Panther Bisto? <laughs> Um, so, David, I just want to congratulate you. This is your second year playing? Is that second correct? Second year. Second team I've ever had in fantasy. It's Well, it was, and I was just saying before the call, we sort of gamed out what we would talk about here, but you did this with James Harden, Luka Doncic, and who else, who, who were your other big, you know, ma major players? Uh, Jimmy Butler. Um, but, you know, but then I, most of my team actually, and only ended up with, I think, five or six players that I drafted on my team. So most of it was waiver wire pickups. Um, I had um, Sabonis Danilo was key Bonar. for you, though, too. Oh, Sabonis. Yeah, Sabonis. Mm -hmm. Wow. And yeah, you had some really great pickups. Dante DiVincenzo, um, Bruce Brown from the Pistons showed out um, quite a bit. Even like your pickup of Shabazz Napier at the end, like he was being really productive. Uh, so you made great moves throughout the season. Do you want to talk Elisa, about your... Damian Lee. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about your, your, your build and sort of how you were approaching it as you uh, crushed the entire league? Well, I had um, I had some real value because um, we had a rookie draft last year where um, the newcomers got um, our pick of uh, the first of the rookies at cost at the at just the Yahoo average cost. So thank you, Kyle, for giving me that leg up because I had first choice and I got Luca. So I had Luca on very, very um, low cost and I picked up DeMontis Sabonis. Um, I just drafted him for a dollar last year. And so I had Luca and DeMontis um, for, I think, a total of $15, which just gave me a lot to play with. Yeah. Then 
I I got the draft time wrong, came in late to the draft thinking I was coming in early, and Yahoo had automatically drafted Harden for me at a really cheap rate. So um, at that point, I was thinking um, I'd be going more for blocks and uh, more for defensive stats. I was like, okay, I here we go. Harden, I've, I've got free throws between these players locked up. I had Jimmy Butler as a keeper, so... I knew I had free throws, um, three-point. Once I had um, Doncic and Harden scoring, I could compete with anyone. Rebounds and assists, I could compete with anyone. So from there, it was just a matter of building up steals. Right, right. And which you did toward the end. You were you were trailing in that category, but made some excellent moves, Napier being one of them, uh, where you picked up steals. And DiVincenzo, too. Like you picked up steals off the wire. There were plenty of them, uh, and, and you found great players for that to sort of fit into this strong build you already had. So, uh, yeah, I just I want to I want to second Chris uh, his notion of your your great play here. Um, it, it, it was great to see, especially from a new team like yours. So uh, uh, congratulations on that. Um, it's it's not easy to do. So it's a tough league. It is a very tough league. It is a tough league. There's there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of action, uh, a lot of trades and moves. One of the things I love from this season, uh, Christopher Shannon, manager of Round Ball Rock, I love the trades you made this season. Do you want to talk about those, uh, the value you got out of those, and then how they set you up for next season, and maybe also give us the front end of that, sort of how, how you got into that position to begin with? Sure. Well, I, so I don't know if everyone loved those trades, but oh, um, not everybody loved those trades. I can think of a minimum of two people right now off the top of my head who didn't. But yeah, yeah. you definitely but, um, made my life harder. <laughs> well, I mean, and they but had did their right. Like that, David. Like I'm fine. I like that he made my life harder. I like that he made the league more competitive. Yes. <laughs> Well, what happened was I so I like David could not make the draft. I but I knew ahead of time, so um, that I couldn't make it. Um, so so you made the draft, David. I, I just I just couldn't. So I had to work or something. So I went in and entered all the values for the pre-draft values, and I just said screw it, I'm gonna draft Carl Towns. So I put like ninety-five dollars on Towns, <laughs> which was maybe the stupidest thing that. I've ever done related to fantasy. I um, swear to God, this was not bad, though. This was not a bad decision, despite what some other manager said about it. I, I think it's a misperception on their part and sort of where some of this value is on these teams. I agree 100%. Well, and looking back to Harden, like the value that Harden brings to your team is actually maybe worth 40% yeah. of your budget. Like, yeah. Um, and so... I look back at last year and T Towns gives you that value too, except this year he did get injured. So, um, right. and he was on again, off again. Um, so anyway, midway through the season, I, I decided to tank and um, I, I initially made a terrible offer to, I'm, I'm even forgetting the name who, who ended up with Towns. Or a boy. Or Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I can't even get into Yahoo cause I, I deleted the app off my phone. So, <laughs> um, but so I offered him a, a, essentially a deal he could not refuse, which was Towns, Buddy Heald, Tobias Harris, uh, for um, guys who were on what I thought were the best contracts in the league. 
So if you're in a keeper league, I guess you could call these contracts. We don't officially call them that, but you know, uh, essentially in our league, the value I saw that Bam Adebayo was going to give me, um, he's going to be $10 in the next year um, of a $200 budget in an auction. Right. So he was, and I also, also he's he'll really, have a value of 30, 40, maybe higher. And because yeah. it's a keeper league, he might be drafted even higher. Right. So sure. Absolutely. Um, so I got him. Um, I got Thomas the tank Bryant and, um, and that was my initial offer. And then our commissioner stepped in and said, hold on. <laughs> so Kyle, I, I mean, I, uh, have to have to say, I'm sorry that you had to deal with that, but, you really saved me. So Kyle stepped in and said I could get more value. Um, and then I ended up getting Chris. No, Paul. I said you had to get more value. I said that you couldn't right. make that trade. And it yeah. wasn't so much about you giving away, you know, so much present value for future value. It was that it created an unfair competitive advantage for intrepid trepanation and and the salaries were not anywhere near where you know, we, we don't do salary matching, um, but we work on a case by case basis, hoping that there's not such a discrepancy that you, um, you know, that you balk at it. And basically, um, I you know I feel like we 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 see situations where we intuit that that there is a competitive um, advantage issue, and we look at the salaries and then we put it to the league and ask people whether they think that it's a fair and acceptable trade. And it just turned out in that situation that it wasn't. Yeah. Which looking back, I totally agree. And if I, if I were, let's say in a public league or something, I would assume that this was like collusion, you know, um, so I think you, in, I think in a public a league, it just would have been killed anyway, because public leagues don't let trades go through. They just there's always somebody that's going to kill those. So, um, yeah, I think I just wanted to jump in and say as sort of the like uh, less experienced fantasy player and just thinking about this from like a real world context. I was thinking about David's team and he mentioned he had Jimmy Butler as a keeper. Um, he mentioned having like free throw shirt up and like uh, Jimmy Butler at actually shot uh, 9.1 free throw attempts uh, a game this year, which is the Ooh. highest of his career. Um, and it was the second highest free throw rate of his career, probably because he just played more this year. Um, right. And he shot 83% from the line. Um, so, I mean, that was obviously a huge help. He basically had like two Harden level free throw jars <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the same team. Um, and Don Doncic also... Um, also got to the line uh, i think uh, a fair amount this season as well 9.1 so, yeah so but, I mean, but his uh, free throw percentage was only 752 yeah so that's he like had a weird dip there yeah i think it'll go up over time but yeah it's just Absolutely. like you you were just drawing so, like, all these players were drawing so many fouls and in the case of harden and butler they're shooting the free throws pretty well and then in the case of um i thought about uh demonte sabonis and bam Adebayo, who you traded for chris and i think in both in fantasy and in the, the real nba the the versatility of bigs you know young versatile bigs are um a huge commodity like they're a staple for you to build your team around uh bam out pretty much became the hub of the heat's offense this year uh obviously jimmy butler was a major playmaker but uh you know 
we were talking about high post offense with Bill Walton recently on um, the classic games pod. And that's pretty much what BAM has become between handoffs and like high post operation or even bringing the ball up in transition. Um, You know, he, he is sort of the point point. forward or point center for their team. Um, And the same thing with Sabonis. um, And we were talking about sort of real life trades off the, Uh, you know, in our group chat. uh, And one of the questions for the Pacers is, do they trade Miles Turner or DeMontis Sabonis? And it's like a difficult question because Sabonis has defensive issues. um, And, you know, you never know with the center how long their archetype will stay in the league or be viable as a, as a player in the league. But then Miles Turner is sort of limited himself. So it's a question of who to, who to trade. So, yeah, I was just thinking about versatile bigs really being powerful in fantasy and the real NBA. Well, and you have Miles Turner on your team, who you got in a trade this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And I think he sort of didn't really provide the value of like his contract because right. I don't think he shot the three as well as he did last year. And I don't think he was blocking shots as well as he did last year either. Yeah, he didn't do any of it as as well as he had before, especially toward the end of the previous season where he was just incredible putting up certain numbers in certain categories. Um, and yeah, that, that progression, up, as soon as Sabonis made that jump, that progression for Turner was gone. Right, but if they break up the Turner-Sabonis pairing, then I think Turner's going to be back. And meanwhile, Bam, is might he might actually be the best value in the league right now. Well, I think yeah. For, for a fantasy league, I think he's up there. I mean, in our league, we also have some gu- other guys on really good qu- contracts, quote-unquote. So we have Darren Fox, Kyle, you have him. Um, and uh, Pascal Siakam, I, I forget what team has him, but he's going to be also $10 next year. So Panther yeah. still has him, so it doesn't matter. You're right. There you go. Yeah. So, But um, that's interesting. In terms of, uh, Kyle, we were talking about the potential that Indiana has to trade um, – you know, in terms of Turner, um, who to trade out of that group. And you showed me that uh, incredible piece of journalism that, by a guy who essentially has a Patreon for his um, articles. And um, he really dug into the Indiana's financial situation. But I think that's not certainly not the only team that's going to be in a, a lot of hurt next year um, and going to need to move some contracts. Um, but Indiana's owner is maybe uniquely hurt because the owner essentially owns shopping malls. Um, yeah, it's him and Tillman. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, maybe there are other owners, but Tillman Fertitta specifically as like someone who owns these like probably low grade restaurants where he's uh, having to lay off like upwards of 30 percent of the workforce. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. So Indiana, I mean, actually, just in this we're, I'm going a little bit afield here, but I actually think Indiana has to choose. They were negotiating Victor Oladipo's uh, extension. I really think that they have a big choice there because I don't think he's going to be the player he was. I really don't. Um, yeah, and I think the article was like kind of pointing out that they they don't really have a choice, you know, because um, he's sort of the face of the franchise and he's like a hometown player essentially yeah. by going to uh, Indiana University for college. And, you know, they're kind of going to be stuck in this not actually competing for a championship liminal space this like in between space between championship contention and like lottery um and so in order to like keep their fans happy and interested and give them something to root for they need like a face they need an entertainer and obviously even if he doesn't uh return to his form you know unless they get major value back for him he's probably still going to be their best bet for like some form of contention you know getting to the second round of the playoffs 
So yeah, if the agreed. old version of the Pistons was a super mediocrity, that, that that version of the Pacers is like a super pretty good team. I think that's been our motto since 2000. <laughs> no, since since 94. That's, yeah, we, you know, always maybe maybe making the second round. Um, but I mean, since 94, they've had like nine conference final appearances. So it's wow. I always I always debate this with people. I'm not debate, but you know, people say that. Oh, when did Indiana matter? It's like, well, I don't know if they did, but here's the facts: they were in the conference finals like nine times. They've they won taken, finals appearance, right? Yeah, in a finals appearance against against. I mean, against peak Shaq and peak Kobe, or you know, early Kobe. But I mean, I could get into it. But <laughs> um, they, I mean, they. You know, I always thought. I always thought the Pacers could have beaten the Lakers like the Pistons did if they had gone through in 2004 of all the teams that the Pistons faced that year that was the one that I thought like gave them the most trouble and um, I was actually just trying to go back and find out if that series went seven or if it only went six but um, but in any case I yeah I mean also you sort of um, I've been going back to the Tayshawn block game which was the turning point in that series. And Chris, would you have any interest in um, doing a, or is it just going to be too painful to, to go back and revisit <laughs> that? No, um, I'll watch any of those. I'd watch a couple games in those series. Cause those Detroit Indiana teams were um, both really, really sort of exemplified that era's game. I mean, you had tough inside out game, but it was a game that was morphing. I thought like you had, you had perimeter, you had guys taking threes um and so you know and it it was one of the it was one of the lowest scoring series ever too i mean they were just you know um you know probably aside from like the 50s um a lot of those games were in the 60s i think there was um i think the the final game was held in the 60s both teams in the 60s um and you know it's also like that series was right before the brawl yeah. And so it's like um like the contentiousness is there but it hasn't yet boiled over and it hasn't yet become this like ugly thing for the league. I just think it would give us a lot of things to talk about if you yeah, if you could endure it. Oh, it, I'm it, I'm down. Yeah. It it'd be kind of cool to go back and look at the significance of the chase down block too. Like you can think of a variety of those in different meaningful games. Um sort of an interesting I'd rather play. I'd rather not think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's going to be the reality. Either you're really going to remember that well, or you're not going to remember that well, depending on your loyalties and allegiances. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll Uh, say, Kyle, uh, Reggie Miller was 38, I think, when when he He got got, chased down there. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you you or I could have chased him down at that point. You know. Well, I mean, that, I, I don't think that that's giving enough credit to how athletic and long Tayshawn was at that point. I mean, oh, yeah. he was completely off screen when Reggie began that break. And, oh, uh, yeah. and like, no, for watching on television um, and people in the arena, I, I like read an oral history of this um, somewhere along the way. And people were saying that, like, in the arena, too, you just didn't think anybody was there. Like right. there was just like no no way anyone was coming, um, 
And that was the way it felt to me. That felt to me like it was going to be the dagger that um, when I was watching, I remember um, seeing it was a steal, I think, and Reggie Miller comes out with it. And there's just this real, there's this deep feeling, you know, that, that shudder that you get when you feel that it's over. Um, really, really felt like not just that the game was over, but there was this feeling for me that the Pistons season was over. Um, and then Tayshawn came out of nowhere and blocked it. And uh, yeah. Oh, well, Tayshawn, I mean, no, nothing, taking nothing away from Tayshawn Prince. I mean, one of the best defensive plays of all time. And um, he was, he was such a great defensive player on Reggie Miller. Um, and, you know, he handled, obviously he went on to win the finals. So, I mean, uh, fantastic player. All right, so um, let's let's move toward a wrap up of the fantasy discussion. I'm going to give everybody a shot here. Um, favorite thing or most notable thing about the season, David? Honestly, I think it was that Chris um, only missed the playoffs on percentage points despite uh, tanking the season. Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty incredible. Um, I, I think Round Ball Rock, if he had made the playoffs, had a shot to beat a lot of teams. Also, it sets him up incredibly well for next season. I think the two odds-on favorites right out of the gate are the two of you, the Step Back and Round Ball Rock. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually probably could have done a lot better had I not immediately moved all of, all of the um, assets I got from that trade. So I moved Chris Paul for Rashawn Holmes and um, I don't know where he's going next year. So, but, um, and, in, and in terms of other, other fantasy stuff, I would say that, you know, again, we had some really interesting teams um, sort of come about as the season progressed, like sort of change. Like I, I initially the, I think who was projected to win at the very beginning, Kyle, I think you were. Um, he was from flying Bas- Alamo all along. And yep. flying Alamo. Yeah, yeah, flying out. Yeah. He had a bunch of players get hurt, and then he stopped playing, and then he started playing again when some of them came back, and then he had his, you know, complaining post about um, the decisions that get made, and then never responded to that and disappeared when some more people got injured. So, um, not sure what we'll see from from that sort of lack of play again. Um, yeah, that was my least favorite thing, is those two teams not playing, Flying Alamo and Alpanther Bisto. Um, Chris, did you have a favorite part? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I just like seeing how, how good David's team came, came on. And for me, as someone who had Harden for three years, I also kicked myself. This, this is my least favorite part, because David just absolutely took me to school and showed me how to put together a team with James Harden. <laughs> so <laughs> I have nice. three shots at it. Didn't do it. Right. Uh, Jalen? Um, I think, I guess my favorite part was just Duncan Robinson. Um, I mean, I yeah. didn't have like a great season, so I made some trades to try and like position myself better for next year and did a lot of stuff on the waiver wire. So I think my, just my heat team, essentially that, that my fantasy team became between, you know, right now I, uh, I have Derek Jones Jr., Duncan Robinson and Kendrick Nunn on my team. And Kendrick Nunn was a nice pickup for me early in the season and yeah, it was just fun, like watching Duncan Robinson blossom into an, a viable NBA player, and like someone who's probably having one of the best shooting seasons in the in yeah. NBA history in his first season, which is, I guess, kind of bad to think about uh, or scary to think about for next year's <laughs> prospects for him, since I'm not sure if he can keep this up. But yeah, it was right. just fun uh, watching Duckin Robinson go off. Yeah, you had He's some a awesome great fit pickups. for your round uh, try. 
Yeah. 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 Um, one of my favorite parts of the league was, was a, a free agent pickup as well. Christian Wood getting him uh, as he started to blossom on the Pistons and get some minutes. That was my favorite part. My other favorite part is really just how well the commissioner, Kyle, handles this whole league. All of these various moving parts and all of these different approaches to the game. Kyle keeps it all moving forward in a nicely balanced, fairly competitive. I mean, competitive in a sense of fair this way not fairly competitive uh I, I really admire that about how he runs the league so kyle i'll give you the last one yeah you know there are times it's it's really great to hear you say that in a way because i'll be honest there have been times when i'm like looking at the workload of like putting into this and i'm like i don't know if i can keep doing that and uh the only thing that really keeps me doing it is that it's just such a like a fun space in the winter months when there's really, you know, not too much else going on. Um, this year I thought that I, I thought that I had a real shot of winning and the, there was a moment, you know, after the pandemic with the uncertainty of the restart where I thought, you know, it wasn't out, out of bounds that Ben Simmons could be back. And that we could have something like an end of the season. And I was like, if that was the case, I think I could win. Um, And uh, but that wasn't what happened. And when I look at my roster here, as we're talking about it today, I'm really most astonished by how much turnover I had. You know, if we're counting like only active roster players, I only have like five players on the team that I started off with at the draft. I mean, just a ton of churn this year, which is, you know, so different from last year when I won it, when it was basically a really consistent roster from the beginning until the end that um, I had relatively few injuries. um, And when I did, I could put them on the IL and then cycle them back on when someone else got injured. Um, Really different sort of, uh, you know, constantly having to be reactive season. And so I'm looking forward to whatever the NBA um, looks like when it comes back and getting back into some fantasy play. But I'm also very, very conscious about what's going on with the league and its relation to and reaction to what's going on in the country socially and politically right now. And I don't want to get ahead of myself in terms of thinking about this, what is obviously a very fun um, activity for all of us, but could really very easily be set aside for, um, you know, issues of the greater good and, uh, and would be, you know, happy to do that um, as long as it it needed to be done um, to get the right word out um and yeah. the right messaging and the right action yeah so um exactly as you're saying kyle as the fantasy nba season is ending the nba itself the real nba is looking at a restart last week the nba's board of governors approved a 22 22 team restart set playoff scenario all of that the nba's players association approved it the next day i think it was the next day um and, well, they approved uh, it in principle. 
They approved it in principle. Okay, that's key. Uh, because shortly after that, we know uh, that a large group of players, um, the biggest name uh, leading them is the vice president of the Players Association, one of the vice presidents, Kyrie Irving, led a group of players who raised some concerns about how the NBA was moving forward uh, with this. You, you know, going into this, I, I, I was sort of proud of the NBA on the front of this, how quickly they responded to COVID and at a, at a time when the United States of America absolutely wasn't doing that. I, I was sort of proud of the NBA for providing a good example, and I was hopeful that the NBA coming back uh, at this point would provide another good example, that they had thought through a lot of the potential restart issues here. And I know they had thought through a lot of it, but um, players uh, and the, this player group has raised quite a few issues, um, a few of them being the rise in positive cases of COVID in Florida, the restrictive environment of the bubble in general, insurance for players who uh, contract COVID during this, and um, associated worry with this is the effects of the after effects of having had COVID and how that would influence a player's ability to play after that, as well as insurance for risk injuries. And then the largest question or issue here is um, one that Kyle mentioned, the greater good. There's the very large question of whether the NBA should be coming back right now. Is that the greater good or is the players not doing that? and emphasizing their energies elsewhere is that for the greater good. So there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, does anybody want to pick it up? Um, yeah, I guess I'll jump in and start. And I mean, I think we have to like look at the NBA's plan to restart the NBA for what it is and start there before we have any okay. more in-depth conversations. And I think you, you would have to say, obviously I'm not a medical expert, but I think you would have to say if public if uh, player safety was of the greatest important, the league would probably decide not to play. And if you want to give yeah. them some leeway about that, you would have to say that if public's, if player safety was most important, they wouldn't have brought back 22 teams. They would have brought back only the, <laughs> right. the 16, 16. Team teams that are like uh, already in the playoffs or even, uh, you know, they could have brought back, you know, the teams that are closest uh, in the, uh, the, the, in the 12 with a real shot. You know, an actual yeah. real shot. Yeah, the teams that are closest in the Western Conference. Right now, as things are constructed, you have to be within six games of the eighth seed in either conference, um, which means that teams like Washington and the Phoenix Suns, who have no real shot to really get into the the um, playoff, play-in scenario that the NBA has constructed, are now a part of it, which, of course, means that there's more potential for spread of the virus within it, more people there in the bubble. And so so I think that we have to say that first off. Yeah, um, well, I think, I think can, can I add something, Jalen, just because yeah, yeah, there's, sure. one, there's one complicating factor that, that I would say about that and that might point toward the 22 team actually in a certain way being better than a 16 team or, you know, you could even imagine them having like a really exclusive, just like we're only going to go with the top four teams from each conference and do a very abbreviated playoff schedule and crown a champion. Any of those, which is that the players are really concerned about, you know, the, the risk of injury and mm -hmm. going right into heavily consequential games amplifies that risk. And so in a way, like the more regular season, the more kind of like lower 
um, you know, gravity games that they have before they go into a playoff setting is better for everybody. No, yeah, but I, I think, think they had to add Washington. They needed to add Washington because if um, only Memphis was the only team that was in the playoffs that had the opportunity of getting bumped out, then they would have thought it was unfair. So you needed an Eastern Conference team that had the opportunity of getting in. But once you add Washington, then you've got to get Phoenix in there because they're closer than Washington. So it's just like, you know, you can see the logic behind all of it. But Jalen's point stands that, you know, if safety is paramount, you just don't play. Right. Yeah. And I, but, I mean, that's Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the NBA Players Association, has, has t- talked about this. And she the quote is, a player is going to test positive. So they're going in with the idea that this will happen and that they'll have ways to deal with that. But I don't think we can say that the health of the players and the associated uh, personnel is paramount here. Like the, the decision is being made that they are putting people at risk. Yeah, and I think this is also the point that I would say. This is from, I think, Tim Bontemps' uh, article on ESPN. And I think the main reason that we have the 22-team structure is money, which is like a normal, natural thing in like a capitalistic society. It's normal that that is a consideration. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a consideration, but if we're pointing out the facts, we have to point out how much of consideration that was. Like the players, and we should also note that the players themselves have also been concerned about losing revenue. So I don't want to put this all on ownership. Uh, The players want to make as much money as they possibly can. And I think that's been some of the impetus for them wanting to play. Uh, But the facts are this, the primary reason is money. This is from the article. If the remaining 259 regular season games had been canceled, the players were facing 645 million in lost salary. Adding 88 games back into the schedule reduces the collective salary loss by 300 million. So that's the reality. Like that's that's why those games are there. That's why those teams are there. And so again, you can weigh whether or not that's right. You can weigh whether or not that's the way it should be. You can weigh whether or not players should, uh, you know, prioritize money over potential potentially their own health or the health of others amid all things that are going on in the country. But we just have to say, like that is, I think if not the primary consideration, like it's one a, I guess I would say. Yeah. And there, so an, an, and they have to be ex- an interesting thought experiment is, you know, cause we think, Oh, $300 million. That's a ton of money. I would go into a bubble and, you know, and risk COVID and blah, blah, blah for $300 million. But, um, what if it was your job, your current salary, and you're going to lose 20% of your salary for the year. If you didn't, go to travel to Orlando, get put up, have to be away from your family for between seven weeks and three months, you know, and you lose 20% of your salary as opposed to getting closer to your full salary, but having to go through all that at our salary rate. And honestly, I don't know if I'd go. Yeah, I, I think that's go. a great way of framing it because <laughs> the 300 million kind of obscures the 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 more specific, minute or smaller losses that like each individual player is taking. And that's just like on a grand scale. So I think you're right to frame it in that way. Well, there's also it's not just the salary this year. I mean, they have to be they have to be afraid in a certain way about what the owners um, are threatening, um, which is to tear up the, the CBA early right. and basically. I mean, there are just too, so many like complicating issues for that because then you just you simply don't have the contract structures that you have now because they've torn up the CBA. It's also, um, as far as these things go, related to other sports leagues, um, it's a very favorable 
CBA for the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are just a lot of, a lot of parts here. And um, I mean, you have to imagine that the, the owners don't want to come and appear too threatening um, at a time when everyone's already feeling that to come back and play just by distracting from the message of social change right now is in and of itself a good enough reason to not play. That to have an actual kind of like threat looming over them from the owners, which would then be seen because of the, the it's predominantly black league, predominantly white owners would be cast very much as a, you know, as a racial divide of wealth um, would, you know, be a terrible look for the league it's a. Uh, I mean, it just feels like there's so much that's still to, to shake out in this. Yeah, and I, I, I was just gonna say, I think you're absolutely right, Kyle, to point out like this is something that has potentially long-term effects, and it's unclear, I guess, to anyone really what is the better way to mitigate those uh, negative effects in the long term, whether that is playing the season or whether that is just scrapping the season and like doing everything that the league possibly can to prepare for next year so that they don't have these losses that continue on into the future and potentially like threaten the league's viability. Uh, But I also think that like this idea that some people have put out there that like playing is the best thing that the league that the players can do for like society and this was pre uh social unrest pre widespread um right. uh protests but i think some people still have this this view but even before that i mean that that was something that i completely reject out of hand and is something that is like i don't think pro labor and is something that is like is trying to fix a level on the problem through charity rather than looking at more systemic issues. Could we, mm. can we, can we talk about LeBron with that? Because it really does seem, you know, the, the, the few interviews that have come out, um, or, I mean, they're not even really interviews. The few stories that have come out about him is that he's holding back. Like he didn't show up to that, that, um, meet the players meeting that was headed by Kyrie Irving. And that, you know, some stories came, came out in the wake of that saying that he really felt that basketball was the centerpiece of his mission. And that this is, you know, this is the platform on which he has a voice and this is where he'll be making his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, I haven't, really seen if if he's coming you know I, I think it remains to be seen whether he would come out and say that right now in this context in those words um he's more or less doing you know this is coming out more or less by him not saying anything and in fact his his social media feeds right now are um are activist um you know mm-hmm. continually so i don't want to presume anything about it but you have to imagine that even that kind of figure of like what position lebron might take is also a figure of you know what a number of players might want to take for um for whatever reasons and i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a pat beverly quote in here uh hoopers say all you want hey hoopers say what y'all want if at king james said he's hooping we all hooping and so it's not personal, only business, stay woke. I, I think Agreed. you're right. I think you're right that LeBron – it's clear that LeBron wants to play. It's com- it's clear that LeBron doesn't feel like playing will, like, uh, dilute his message in any way. And I think he's right about that. And, like, to some degree, even if he wasn't right, I think that would be okay because we've already seen that LeBron – has done uh, sort of both models. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Danny LaRue and 
uh, I think Curtis Harris, the Pro Hoops History, and he was talking about the different forms that athlete activism has taken. And sometimes it's taken the forms of charity and money and humanitarian issues. Um, and we've seen LeBron take that route, you know, building a school and donating to all these places. But we've also seen LeBron take a more direct stance on his social media, you know, calling the president a bum, it being yeah. a part of the I Can't Breathe t-shirt wearing the shirts for Trayvon Martin. So he's taken both tacks. And so I think... Right. And now more what? than a vote. His, with the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think him saying that I can do both is, I think, completely accurate and in keeping with his experience. Um, yeah. But but I guess the larger point I'm trying to make is that, like, there we, we seem to, as a society, to constantly ask of this, like, immense sacrifice for the people that want to make... Um, changes to our systems and i think that's a that's an indictment of the system itself right like it's an indictment that people have to be out in the street risking getting covid because there's something else that's even a greater danger to them which is like systemic racism and in the yeah. same way it's like a failure of the system that we could or some people are potentially telling lebron um, you know, besides the people who are telling him shut up and dribble and just play, some people are saying like, no, you have to sit out, you know, lose all this money, lose this thing that you've worked your entire life for. Like that's a failure of the system as well. And so I just, I just want to point that out and bring that to the conversation. I think what it's do a you great make point. of the, what, what do you make of the, a lot of commentators are saying, you know, um, that if, when people go to play, that gives them a bigger platform, you know, and, and I, I'm skeptical about that because we see, First, so many NBA players, you know, the Jalen Browns and Malcolm Brogdon's actually leading the more leading um, demonstrations. We see so many WNBA players just quitting the league in order to focus on social activism. So, I mean, what, what is your guys' take? Do you think going to play will give them the larger platform or do you think um, that, you know, it'll take the focus away from these issues? I think it's, you know, I, I'll say something on there because I think it's sort of... Um... It does have a potential sort of like honey and vinegar, um, like, you know, sort of reading of it. Like you can imagine, I, I don't think it'll necessarily be a larger platform, but I think it'll be a different platform. I think that the, the, the type of platform that players will have when they're playing um, because of the wider audience that they will be able to bring in for the messaging that they want to have um, may, you know, have that um you know, sort of luring a little bit with honey as opposed to, you know, vinegar um, to, to sure. use that, that, you know, th that mm. sort of metaphor. But, um, but I also, you know, that's not to, to like validate that necessarily. Um, I, I, because uh, in that metaphor, it still flies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're all flies. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> There you go. It, it, it's problematic in another sense. I mean, we, we, we know from lots of social psychological research that attempts to persuade people to uh, change their ways of thinking about things can be really difficult. And I'm not sure that even that platform in that guise, in the honey version, is persuasive and i'm wondering in a sense how you set that against something like um stephen jackson has a quote um playing basketball is going to do one thing take all the attention away from the task at hand right now and what we're fighting for and then lou williams has a, another version of this same thought if we had a game today and you leave a protest to watch it that's a distraction any questions 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an extremely difficult question because, and I think it depends on the player also. Like for I'm I'm like David. I'm skeptical of the idea that the players will have a larger platform by playing, but I think it depends, right? So take LeBron as the example. If LeBron doesn't play and everyone else goes off and play, maybe his platform is less. But I think that only depend that depends on how much he commits to the cause by not playing. So if he doesn't play and if he's front and center at every major protest across the country, he's using his like massive resources to take private jets to fly to these places. And, you know, within within rules of, of COVID and all those sorts of things. And yeah. he's front and center at all of these protests. He's front and center at petitions. He's front and center. I think his platform will be fine. But obviously, if you want to take like a recent example of Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick's platform, I think, was much bigger when he was in the NFL because he was just there all he was in on tv in people's faces every sunday um yeah. and all throughout the week in interviews so i think if you're not a player like mike uh, like lebron james i think being there is probably going to be a larger platform like you'll be more a part of a mass of people that are participating in protests and working for change but if you're there um in the bubble playing then maybe you'll be you'll be but again i think Kyle's point of the like honey and vinegar is there. Your protest in the bubble is not going to look like your protest outside of the bubble because yeah, the league will just not allow that. Right. One other thought that I had, which I think is actually really useful for framing this, you know, Paul Virilio has this argument about protests um, in the 20th century. And is, I think it's from his book, Speed and Politics. But th it's basically that you know, mass demonstrations that, as we've come to understand them today and, you know, usually figured in like, you know, these photographs of people out in the streets, they they really, the, the primary force that they have is that they they literally block circulation, right? They, they shut down, they slow down the speed of like normal commerce and society and force people to reckon with a blockage. Mm -hmm. um, and I only bring that up because I do think that there are ways that media too, and the speed of communication over media can be um, subjected to blockages that can have similar effects. And it's, you know, Stephen Jackson um, and, you know, uh, and Lou Williams and many other people who are saying this right now might be right that one of the ways that you um, shut down the speed of, of um, you know, sort of the circulation of information and force a blockage and force a reckoning is simply by not putting content there. Right. Mm -hmm. You you do it by um, the moment when there's supposed to be a message, right? An NBA season happening, say. Um, there not being something there figures in that moment um, as an emptiness, as a blockage, um, as you know, a counter to the usual flow of communication. And um, and I, you know, I, just to like, I don't want this to seem like very abstract. I mean, these are like the kind of things that I that I deal with in in my own work. I think that the, that it isn't. I think that that kind of abstraction is is actually just a a way of describing how the reality of the situation would operate and why it might be so smart of them to say, you know, stay out there in the streets very literally blocking the circulation and then have the secondary effect of this sort of like blocking in the media sphere. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great way to think about it, Kyle. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Great bit. So um, 
Do we have any other big questions here that you guys want to talk about? I just uh, had a quick question. Yeah. Sorry, I just want go to go ahead, back Chris. to in terms of the bubble, just I've been listening to um, other pods and whatnot. And then I saw a tweet from, I think, JJ Reddick um, came out that it's actually not going to be a bubble because the people who are working, the facility staff, hospitality staff, they're not in the bubble. Is that is that changed or are they still working that out? Last I heard, they weren't. Yeah, the people, the staff, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the catering, et cetera. Are not are going to be living at home, but they're also not going to have any direct contact with the players. Okay. Yeah, and I think people yeah. they were saying from what I've read, the like for example, bus drivers, the staff that was having more direct contact with the players would be provided with like more frequent tests. I don't know if they would be tested every day, but I think that they would receive you know testing and they would be they would do everything possible to keep them six feet away and wear masks. So, yeah, that's what I've read. Right. But, I, but I think you're you're right to point out like the idea of a bubble because, you know, it isn't a complete bubble, which is in some ways a good thing if you think about it in terms of mental health from the players, you know, being sequestered in this one location for months, uh, potentially, or at least weeks on end away from their family. Uh, and, you know, what the mental health ramifications of that, given that there is a pandemic going on all around them, given that there are like protests and demonstrations in the street. Um, but also it's like you have to have, I think there's all these questions about what the league can enforce, what they can ask of the players. And I think that's been some of the pushback from players outside of the context of the political unrest has just been how strict is the bubble going to be and like what that actually means for the players, you know, um, will they be able to leave the bubble and, or will they not? And will their families be able to be there? Because I think originally their families were going to be able to be there, but now there's some, uh, change in that and maybe they won't be able to come until after the first round of the playoffs or later i think that was always the plan though jalen i think once that first wave of teams was eliminated and there are many fewer people in the bubble because those teams are no longer there that's mm -hmm. when the families of the remaining teams were going to be coming in i think that was the plan mm -hmm. yeah Jay, um, yeah you're both you're both right the the original talk before there were any actual plans was that they would do a bubble large enough to allow for families. Mm -hmm. But the original plan that was actually produced was what Michael said. But I, but obviously these people, the families that are going to be entering the bubble, you know, they're entering later. Um, and I right. don't know like what the process will be for testing them before they enter. And I'm not sure yeah. Yeah. whether or not they'll be allowed to leave the bubble and come back or so. I don't know. Well, and one of the things that gets played around, kicked around in the media is, is um, this is from Michelle Roberts again, um, no player is being forced to play. They keep that, that quote will show up in a lot of these articles, no player is being forced to play. But you uh, give it, up it, any it's a kind of, Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a kind of propaganda here and that being. Yeah, I was going to say that's, mm. that, that there might not be a hard no one is forced to play, but there's a pretty, yeah. you know, there, there's a pretty pervading soft, you must play. Well, I think there are a lot of, you know, this, this aspect of it is interesting and it's something we haven't talked about. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. Um, 
Kyrie Irving is being trashed in a lot of venues for standing up and raising some of these concerns, which to my mind seem entirely legitimate. Absolutely. And so I love, you know, while everybody's making fun of him in social media in part because he said some things that are considered outlandish and, and other about other things like the flat earth stuff, but he seems really right here. And maybe, and I can't remember which article this was. It could have been Michael Lee. It could have been Jared Weiss. Um, one of the people at The Athletic was writing a really nice piece about this. Maybe Kyrie is truly finding his voice now and being the leader he always wanted to be. Maybe this is him taking up that mantle. Yeah, and I think for me, what I think about when I think of people trashing Kyrie is that like, I think of the idea that like you don't get the heroes you want, you know, you just get the people that you get, you know, not even necessarily who you deserve. And like, and I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Kyrie has obviously had flaws and like done things wrong in like a professional sense of like whatever you want to talk about in like his time in in Boston, or if you just want to talk about him saying like putting out the flat Earth theory, you know, throughout his time. So he's like he's obviously had missteps, but like I think. And maybe I'm wrong to say this and someone who's more researched or or more informed about it can correct me. But like, I think it seems like a product of social media where we're all expected to be right all the time and we can never be wrong and we can never grow in our positions. And I think at a time like this, we need to be accepting more voices into things with within reason and within like maybe a potential hierarchy based on the circumstances. But I think if Kyrie, even though he's made those missteps, if he's bringing good points to the table, people should be working to like accept those and like working yeah. with him maybe to clean up other areas where he's not as strong or not as informed rather than like rejecting him out of hand completely. Right. To explain a little bit of the backlash, none of you are Game of Zones fans. No. no, well, not, sure. I'm not fans, <laughs> I, I, I just don't I've watch. Watched it. I feel like recently. I'm a fan, but like I don't watch it. So um, th- this season of Game of Zones, which was you know totally written before the anything in the NBA season, is all about the dream team coming back and trying to take over the current NBA. So oppression in that way, and Kyrie leads a player revolution against a seemingly reasonable plan. <laughs> So I think a lot of the black backlash is just he's playing to type in a way that seems predictable that people had already made fun of months before any of this happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's another part of this, too, I, I think is worth talking about. We, you know, we're uh, some of the media coverage is sort of setting LeBron against Kyrie here again. You know, other people in this group of players questioning the restart, though, two of them are on LeBron's team, Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard. And one of the things I read about is that a lot of one of the things that led to this um, this group of players questioning some of the ways that the NBA is going about this restart is the fact that there was one representative for each team that voted in what would happen from the players association side a lot of and so a lot of players didn't feel heard this was a way for them to feel heard but i'm wondering what kind of team chemistry that affects later on too like there's there's a lot there's a lot going on here with money contracts team chemistry team camaraderie you know camaraderie all of these sorts of things and legacy. I, I mean, like people are plenty of camaraderie when they get to the bubble. 
Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, they'll well, work things all... out pretty fast. One of the big issues that people are, you know, I mean, going out, out there on Twitter is the idea that, of course, LeBron wants to come back because he's fighting for this legacy of, you know, greatest player of all time. And, of course, he wouldn't want to miss one of the last years in at the like high point of his you know play um and similarly you know the charge is then um leveled at Kyrie that you know one of the reasons why he can stand up right now is because um he can't go to the bubble anyway because he's injured this year um I think all of these are really kind of out of line and unfair. Um, I don't think that LeBron's choice, um, even, you know, whatever he needs to make, you know, whatever decision he makes is going to be complicated and it's going yeah. to be about a number of different factors and it's going to be, um, a very human and social decision, um, you know, in response to the environment and everything that's going on. And the same thing is going on with Kyrie that, yeah. um, this, this isn't just because he's some, in some way insulated because he, he's not, you know, um, doesn't have to go play. It's not, um, in, it's not just in a, a string of his, um, kind of outlandish actions, you know, like his flat earther stuff and his demanding to, to be traded out of Cleveland and these, you know, sort of things that have been attached to his character. Um, right. it's a, it's a really, you know, complicated um decision that he has to make in this moment and i think it should be taken for what it is and its um intent should be taken for what it is i completely agree and it was why i was really sort of um i i dredged up an enormous hatred for kendrick perkins earlier today because he suggested that kyrie irving was doing this simply because he was not being allowed in the bubble outlandish accusation and doesn't and doesn't allow any of the things you just said kyle can yeah. person perkins trash talk someone that's, that's really out of character. Why, why am i listening to begin with right jalen what you said before the pod that you had some kendrick perkins takes what are you... yeah i just mean i feel like there's a long list of kendrick perkins um bad terrible takes uh that are out there in the world like basically every time he opens his mouth like i've sort of written about this before that he has like a personal vendetta against steph steph curry which i think is informed by colorism and like whatever sort of like um tinges of privilege that come with steph curry's uh, light skinnedness light eyesness like it it's kind of sick it's kind of sick if i'm being like quite upfront about it that every time kendrick perkins talks about steph curry he talks about his light eyes which yeah. is obviously just this like deeply seated self-hatred that dates back to slavery and you know um slave owners raping their slaves and like the discord that that can create in those environments and like the legacy of that is colorism today amongst the black community and so i just think kendrick perkins is saying these things on espn which is like quite crazy and is maybe uh an indication that espn doesn't have enough black people or doesn't really care about like ending this sort of message or ending that sort of stuff out there um Mm. so i mean i think that is like i think that is an undercurrent of my interpretation of kendrick perkins he's like it it just seems like it always goes back to that he's basically trying to prop up trey young as being already better than steph curry and it's just sort of like it just seems to be like uh, that seems to be the undercurrent of all of it and i just think kendrick perkins is not like I don't think his opinion should be taken as gospel on anything right. besides like 
post defense and and the ability <laughs> to use six fouls in a basketball game. <laughs> that I was agree the with thing the last point. Yes, that was the thing he was post, best at. Post defense, yeah, maybe, but definitely using six fouls. Yeah. Um, this whole thing, uh, the whole conversation, just I just quickly want to. I mean, in terms of uh, all these things going on with the NBA, it's just really showing how they are handling the question of, in a way, it's a large question of what is a grievable life, the whole Judith Butler thing. I mean, and in terms of, uh, you know, like, yeah, they're going to bring back the games, but COVID is still there. Florida is having more cases than ever. Um, and the bubble, I mean, really, unless it's a true bubble, it's unless it's a real, real bubble. Um, I, I really ac- actually echo Kyrie's doubtfulness. I really do. Like I, yeah, maybe he maybe the, maybe he thinks the earth is flat, but I, I agree with him now. So Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so um let's go around again. Uh last take David on on the NBA restart. I think everyone's putting it beautifully. I mean, on, on the one hand, I really look forward to the games. I love the NBA. I love watching the NBA. But, you know, these are people we're talking about and yep. if the people have concerns, we got to listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle? You know, one of the, my favorite lines that I read was, it was an unattributed quote from an NBA, um, former NBA player saying, if we don't play right now in reaction to the social unrest, social events, you know, the need for change, um, at what point will we be ready to play? Because it basically says that we shouldn't have been playing all along. Right. And the, the, I liked it both as a way for thinking about why it might be worthwhile to play the games now. But I also wanted to, you know, sort of respond to it to say that, you know, just because the league continued on under circumstances, in a sense, when it shouldn't have, doesn't mean that in this moment, when it really could matter that they don't play, that they shouldn't play now. Right, right. Chris? I think I said it before. I'm, I'm with if if they can make a real bubble, then go for it. Otherwise, they're putting people people's lives at risk. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my version is I would love to see the NBA play basketball. I love the NBA. I love watching it. I would much rather see good, positive social change. Um, yeah. Jalen, last words. Yeah, I guess I'll just say we were talking about LeBron's desires for playing and whether or not it was simply that he was trying to take advantage of potentially his last opportunity to win a championship. And I think Kyle talked about that point beautifully. And I guess I would just add that even if that were the case, how would LeBron be different from whole swaths of the population prior to this very politicized yeah. moment that we're experiencing yeah. now? And I, and the broader point then being, think about what is asked of black people in this country, what is asked of black celebrities, uh, what they're asked to carry, and LeBron specifically in that example. So I guess I would just leave that as my final point for people to think about. Yeah, it's a lot. Um... Yeah. All right. That is the Shot Tower Pod. We are turning off the Phantom Power.